Hello, everyone, and welcome to Live Through Jesus with Courtney Gilmore. On this episode, God tells Moses and Aaron about the last plague, faith requires a sacrifice, the Passover, dedication of the firstborn sons, and our Passover lamb. Lesson 13 of the Exodus study, Exodus 11, 12, and 13. Now, just as a quick side note, I'll be reading all the scripture references for you, so you're free to just sit back, listen, and absorb, or you can grab your Bible and read along. Most of the time, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but if I switch, I'll let you know. At the beginning of each episode, I'll introduce the title, so if you want the entire study in writing, you can go to livethroughjesus.com and buy it for under $5. Each one will cover two to three months' worth of episodes, and once you buy, then it'll be immediately available for download. In addition to a little extra studying, it also allows you the benefit of some charts and keyword definitions, but it isn't necessary. Okay, so let's get started. I still don't have the written study done, but if you want a free copy of it whenever it's finished, just email me at Courtney at livethroughjesus.com and I'll get you a free copy since you've gone through this whole study with us without any of the scriptures in front of you or the charts or anything like that. I'm sorry about that. Now, last week, we went through the eighth and ninth plagues that were sent on Egypt. And we talked about how Pharaoh refused to humble himself before the Lord and about how he wanted control of the situation and had no intention of submitting to the Lord. And if you happen to miss that episode, you're going to want to go back and listen to it because we talked about humbling ourselves before the Lord and not holding things back from Him, submitting really every area of our life to Him and allowing Him to be the Lord of it. So if you missed that episode, you might want to go back and listen to it. Today, we're going to begin reading in Exodus 11 when God announces the last plague to Moses and Aaron. We're going to read all of chapter 11. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of all the people. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and of all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as was not like it before, nor shall it be again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against the man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. After that I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he didn't let the children of Israel go out of the land. So before the last plague, God told Moses everything that was about to happen and how the Israelites could prepare for it. After God exercised his power over the Egyptians' firstborn sons, then Pharaoh was going to drive them out completely. Moses even told Pharaoh that there was going to be such a cry in Egypt that there's never been before. And afterwards, even his servants were going to bow down to Moses and ask them all to leave. Now, this helps us a little bit more understand one more reason that the plagues had to reach this ultimate point. Because God never intended for Pharaoh to only let the people go for a small amount of time to worship. He really did want 
Pharaoh to push them completely out of that land. And so he had to push Pharaoh to the limit that he would just run the people out forever. That was the intention because it isn't as if he was tricking Pharaoh all along saying, hey, just let my people go and worship. And then if Pharaoh would have let them go, then they would have just stayed gone. God doesn't lie and he's not deceptive. So God was asking for the real thing, but also he knew that Pharaoh would eventually just throw them completely out. And that was what he wanted. So that's why I keep saying I've hardened his heart so that my wonders can be multiplied and these things will come to pass. And since they're going to run them out of there completely, God tells Moses to tell the people to go and ask all of the Egyptians for silver and gold and clothing and that he was going to make the Egyptians favor the Israelites, and they're going to give it to them freely. God already foretold this in Exodus 3, 21 and 22. Before Moses ever even went to Pharaoh, God told him that this is the way it was going to end up. Verse 21 says, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So here it gives us the more information that they also are going to ask for clothing. It doesn't say that in chapter 11. It also tells us here that they will plunder the Egyptians, but we find that the Egyptians are giving it to them freely. So they're not taking it as you would normally use that word plunder, but it is a great taking of all the belongings of the Egyptians. So they're not plundering them as if they had gone to war or something and taken all of their stuff, but they are taking something that belongs to the Egyptians, even though it's being given to them freely. And I just love how God is able to do this, to give favor on his people by their enemies. That's amazing that God would make it work like that. And the Lord does this for a couple of reasons. The first reason is for their provision, because if you remember, they have been working for free for decades now. And so they don't have anything. They're not going to be able to leave with a lot of money. They're not going to be able to leave with a lot of clothes unless they get it from the Egyptians. But it also was God's justice. Since they've been working for free all of this time, God is making sure now that the Egyptians are paying them. They're receiving their wages for all the work that they've done. And not only are they getting the money just to be able to function, but they're getting the money from the people that owe it to them. So God is granting them justice here. He has the power to provide for our needs and to grant justice for his people. And this is just an example of that. Now, this last plague also shows God's power. I want to remind you of the last thing that happened in the last episode. At the very end of the ninth plague, Pharaoh says to Moses, Get away from me, take heed to yourself, and see my face no more. For in the day that you see my face, you shall die. So Pharaoh just threatened God's firstborn son with death. In chapter 4, verse 23, God calls Israel his firstborn son, and he says that this is what's going to happen. Listen to what it says there. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. The reason that Israel's called his firstborn son is because this is his first nation born to him. The first nation that is called his children and they call him their God as an entire nation. And he says, you've mistreated my son and you won't let them go. Then I will kill your firstborn son. And so this is a direct response to Pharaoh threatening to kill the Israelites. Once he threatens to kill God's firstborn, then God threatens and follows through with killing his firstborn son. This is God's response to him. And you know, Pharaoh has been exalting himself as the ruler over God's firstborn nation this entire time, even though he doesn't have any power to do that, really. And so God is like, you're trying to exalt your power over my children. 
but I'm actually going to exalt my power over your firstborn son. And you're going to see that I actually have the power to do this. So God is teaching many lessons to Pharaoh in doing this. Okay, so the first thing that the Israelites have to do to prepare is ask for the silver, gold, and clothes. Now, chapter 12 is going to tell us what else they need to do. So we're going to skip the first couple of verses and begin in chapter 12, verse 3, and read to verse 13. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of the month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lentils of the house where they eat. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in the fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boil it at all with water, but roast it in the fire, its head and its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with your belt on your waist and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike at the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be assigned to you on your houses wherever you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now skip to verse 21. We're going to read 21 to 23. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and strike the lintel in the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses and strike you. So previously, with the rest of the plagues, God ensured that his people weren't affected just by making it not touch their land. But this time, if Israel doesn't want the plague to fall on them just the same as it will on the Egyptians, then they have to make a sacrifice. This time, they have to put their faith in action. And if they do that, then God will save their lives. And we'll talk a little bit further about this later, but our faith does require action. This is a picture of salvation. Whenever we truly have faith, then we put that faith into action and God saves us not only physically like he did them here, but eternally. And so I want to read to you James 2, 14 to 26, because it talks about this faith and our action in this verse. It says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give him the things that are needed for the body, then what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe, though, and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by those works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, not by faith alone. 
Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by words when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. If they would have just said, yeah, I believe in you, but they wouldn't have killed the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, then they would not have been saved in this situation. They had to actually act. They had to show their faith to God. And so our faith and our works work together. When we really believe something, we act on it. Our works are not saving us, but our works are the product of our saving faith. And so they were asked this time to sacrifice a lamb in order to show their faith. And God gave them specific details as to how to do this. And each one of these details is going to specifically be important later on in the Bible. So we want to pay close attention. The first instruction is that they are to select a one-year-old male lamb that doesn't have any blemishes. That means there's nothing wrong with it on the 10th day of the month. And this lamb can be either from the sheep or the goats. It doesn't matter. And then they keep this lamb for four days and they kill him at twilight on the 14th day of the month. And they have to be careful not to break any bones. This is stated later on in the chapter in verse 46. Now, if the family was too small to eat a whole lamb, then they had to share with someone else because no food is supposed to be left until morning. So they want to have as little amount of leftovers as possible. And any food that's left over, they're going to have to burn completely. So they select the size of lamb that they need or share with another person. And then these last couple of verses talk about how after they slaughter the lamb, then they dip a bunch of hyssop into the lamb's blood and paint the door frames with the blood. And this hyssop is just a bushy branch that comes from the mint family. And so it looks like a paintbrush. It would be perfect to paint things on with. That's why they're using it. And then it says at midnight on the same night of their meal, God is going to pass through the land of Egypt and he's going to kill all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians and their animals. But the blood of the lamb is going to serve as a sign on the Israelites' houses that a life's already been taken for that household. So the angel of death can just pass right over their house because it's like, oh, I was going to kill their firstborn, but the sacrifice has already been made. The death has already happened. The debt has been paid, so to speak. And so I can pass right over this house and not touch it at all. So that's the reason that they're doing this. And of course, the reason that we call it the Passover. Now, there was also a specific way that they had to eat this meal. The lamb had to be roasted. It couldn't be boiled or eaten raw. And it talks other places of the Bible about not eating the lifeblood of the animal. So that's one reason that they don't eat it raw. But also because other religions at that time would make sacrifices and they would eat raw meat. And so no worship to God can look anything similar to the worship of other gods. So God's distinguishing this religion from all other religions by making sure that they roast this animal. Also, this meal needs to be eaten with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. And the reason for the unleavened bread is because they're going to be, remember, rushed out so quickly that they don't have time to do anything. And so there's no time for the bread to rise. And then the reason that they eat the bitter herbs is just as a symbol to remind them how bitter their lives were in Egypt. Now, they also had to be dressed and ready when they left because when this plague hits Egypt, Pharaoh is going to rush them out so quickly that if they're not ready, they're going to miss out. So they have to be completely ready, which if you knew that someone was going to set you free from slavery, you'd be ready. Like, no question. You'd be standing there waiting until the moment that they say go so you can just walk out. And that's what God's asking them to do. So those are all the instructions that the Israelites needed for the 10th plague. But God is also going to give them instructions regarding this Passover after they leave Egypt. So let's read some of the verses in verse 12 that we didn't read before, beginning with verse 1 and 2. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. 
Okay, and then skip down to verse 14. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which every one must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout all your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Now again, we're going to skip down to verse 24, because we already read 21 to 23. And it says, And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It shall come to pass, when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be, when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Okay, now that's God giving this command to Moses to tell the people. And then in chapter 13, verses 3 through 10, Moses tells the people this. And there's a little more information, so we're going to read it. It says, Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month of Abib. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leaven shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up out of Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth, for with the strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its seasons from year to year. Now, I'm going to read a couple of other places in the Bible that also talks about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and this Passover meal and the memorial of it. The first one is in Leviticus 24, 4-8. to and it is, again, just Moses reminding the people of all the things that they're going to do whenever they get into the promised land. It says, These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So that gives a little bit more information about the whole week of this feast. Lastly, we will find a little more information in Deuteronomy 16, 1-9. This is just before they go into the land. Moses is again giving them these instructions because there's been time between the Leviticus passage and the Deuteronomy passage. It says, Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. 
Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction for you came out of Egypt in haste that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days. Nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of the gates which the Lord your God gives you. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses, and in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. Okay, so that's a lot of information about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but each place we get a little bit more information. It also talks about this in Exodus 23, 14 and 15 and 18, and then also 34, 18, but it doesn't really have any extra information, so we're not going to read that. So let's start back at the very first of chapter 12. Their God tells them that when they leave, they are to begin an entirely new calendar because this is going to be the beginning of them as a nation. And so God is setting up their own calendar for them in their new nation. And it's going to begin with this month. This month of Exodus for them is going to be their very first month. And their months follow the lunar calendar whereas ours follow the sun. And so their months will fall between our months. So it'll be kind of like from the middle of one of our months to the middle of another one of our months. And the chart in this written study will show where each of these months fall. But I do want to explain to you that on this chart, it's going to say that the first month is called Nisan. And you'll realize here in chapter 13 that it says the name of the month is a B. And the reason for that is because Moses writes the first five books of the Bible. And in the language that Moses is writing in, it is called a B. But the rest of the Bible, the language that it's written in, the name of it is Nisan. So it's the same month. There's no contradiction there. It's just a difference in the language. And this month would be our March to April. So sometime mid-March is when they're leaving the land of Egypt and beginning to practice the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so God is telling them, when you leave this land of Egypt, then I'm going to bring you into the promised land that I promised to your fathers all those hundreds of years ago. And when you get out of here and you become your own nation, then I want you to practice these things every single year during this month to remind yourself of what I did for you in Egypt. And so he says every single year in the month of Abib or the month of Nisan, on the 10th day, you are to select the sacrificial lamb. And then on the 14th day, you will kill it at twilight. And if you notice in that Deuteronomy verse, it says you do not sacrifice within the gates, but only in the place that the Lord chooses to put his name in the place that he tells you to sacrifice the animals. And when he sets up their nation in the new nation of Israel, God tells them that he will have one central place that they will all worship and do all of these things. And that will be the place that he puts his name. And that ends up being Jerusalem. But at this moment, they don't know that. They just know that God is going to tell them where to do this when they get there and that they just won't do it within their own gates. It'll be the place that God chooses to put his name and tells them to make that sacrifice. And so he says, when you get into this promised land, you will do it in that place. You will sacrifice your animal in that place. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread is going to begin on the 15th, and it will be observed until the 21st. 
And so they're going to remove yeast from their houses for that entire seven days and only eat the bread that doesn't rise. And they're going to hold a holy assembly on the first and the seventh days of this and do no customary work. So on the 15th and the 21st, they can't do any work except for the work it says in chapter 12 that they need to do in order to prepare this food. That's the only work that they can do. Then also in the Leviticus verse, it tells us that they are to make an offering of fire for all seven days to the Lord. So they have a holy day on the 15th and the 21st where they do no customary work and set the days aside to God. But also throughout the entire week, they're supposed to eat unleavened bread and sacrifice an animal to the Lord. And then when their children ask them why they observe these days, they're supposed to tell them about how God struck the Egyptians' houses with death, but passed over their houses. And this is still a tradition for the Jews today, and it's done as a ritual of remembrance. They have their children actually ask them this question. It's a ritual. And so the children say, why do we celebrate this? And then they say in these same words what God told them to say to their children about the Passover. And then they all bow their heads and pray and worship as is demonstrated here. And this was so important that they remember these days that God took them out of Egypt and that they told this story that what happened to them, that God told them to tie reminders around their wrists and around their heads so that they wouldn't forget these laws. So that's what it was saying there at the end of chapter 13, when it says, let it be a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes. So it would be right there on their foreheads. They would tie something around that. And so the Orthodox Jews also practice this today. They strap these boxes to their arms and their foreheads, and they contain scrolls that have important verses that they're supposed to remember during their prayer times so that they can continuously thank God for bringing them out of Egypt and the salvation that he gave there. And so the lesson that we need to take from this is that God considered it so very important for them to remember every single year on this day what he did for them, that they would do the same thing to remind themselves, and then that they would tell other people so that everyone would know all that God was capable of. These things were so important to him that he gave them these rules. So we too need to think of the things that God has done for us personally in our own lives, all that he's provided for us in ways that he's delivered us, all of those types of things, and see if there's any kind of memorial that we can have for those things, any days that we can set aside, any signs like they had with these prayer boxes that would help us remember the things that God's done for us and give us an opportunity to tell other people because God obviously thinks it's important that we remember who he is and what he does for us. And we also are a witness of that to other people. So that would be something very important for us to try to do now. Set aside days or times or ways to remember these things and then tell other people about them and thank God for them. Now, God gave further instruction at the end of chapter 12 as to who is supposed to participate in this Passover meal and also who is allowed to. So we're going to read that passage now from verse 43 to 49. And it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten, and you shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it, and when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it and he shall be as the native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. One law shall be for the native-born and the stranger that dwells among you. So providing that this was going to be the beginning of their nation, God is setting the rules for their government up right now during that month every year to remind them what God had done for them. 
Well, now God is telling them who is supposed to participate in this meal and who is allowed to participate in this meal. So every single person that belongs to the Lord has to participate in these holy days of memorial to him. If they do not choose to, then they are cut off from the nation of Israel. They can no longer live there. They must go somewhere else. Now, if they are a foreigner or a hired worker, they cannot participate. But the Israelite servants and then those that weren't born to their family that are living among them, they can participate if they're willing to profess their faith in God by circumcising their men. So that's really the thing is that if you are willing to circumcise your men, be like those people that are living in that land, then they would be allowed to participate in this Passover. But they had to have a profession of faith. They had to make a sacrifice in order to show that they believe in the Lord and chose to go by his laws. Everyone that wants to be a part of this nation of Israel has to make God their Lord and go by the same laws as the Israelites. And if they don't want to do that, they don't want to follow his traditions, they don't want to follow their laws, then that's fine. They just don't get to be a part of that nation. That's just the way that is. And so whenever he's distinguishing a foreigner and a hired worker between a stranger and a servant, what he's basically saying is a foreigner and a stranger's difference would just be a foreigner is someone that doesn't live there and doesn't choose to go by their laws. A stranger would be someone that isn't from there, but they believe in God and they want to go by his laws and they're willing to circumcise themselves. A hard worker would be somebody that worked for him, but doesn't care at all about their religion or anything like that. Then that person wouldn't be allowed to participate. But if they're their servant, they live with them, they want to be a part of their family and go by their laws, then they're allowed to participate as long as they get circumcised. So my question to you would be, is this something that nations should implement today? That if a person wants to enter their country, they have to go by the laws of that nation and follow whatever the standards are that are set up by the existing group of people there. I mean, you can see from this that it definitely makes a nation more united whenever they all are united along some sort of a set of beliefs of the way the government will be conducted. That doesn't mean that it's exclusive. It's not even exclusive of other cultures or anything. Anyone that wants to circumcise themselves and go by the same laws as the Israelites is welcome. It's just you can't come into this nation and then try to change all of our laws or not go by our laws because we're an existing nation. This is what the people here believe and do. To me, that makes perfect sense. And it seems that a nation would be unified in that no matter how many different cultures or races or ethnic groups there are in that nation, as long as everyone has the same core set of beliefs of how to run their nation, it seems that it would make sense. I'm not talking about necessarily religion or whatever. I'm just saying a core set of beliefs. Does everyone agree on the laws there, the premise of this nation? Anyway, those are my thoughts on that. I don't know how you feel about it, but it makes sense to me that it would be a more united nation if everyone would go by the laws of the people that set the nation up. So that's just a little side note. Let's go ahead and see what else God told them to do when they entered their new nation. This is Exodus 13, 1 and 2. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all your firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. And then skip down to 11 to 16. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the male shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in this time, saying, What is this? 
that you should say to him, By strength of hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of the sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand, as frontlets between your eyes, For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. So he's just saying that since God passed over their houses and didn't kill their firstborn sons, that they are to dedicate their firstborn sons and the firstborn of their livestock to him because he killed that of the Egyptians. So when they enter this nation, they're going to set their sons apart and they're going to sacrifice their firstborn animals to the Lord. And if it's a donkey, then they don't sacrifice it. They're either going to substitute that donkey for a sheep or they just break its neck because they don't eat the donkeys. Also, they're obviously never going to sacrifice their own sons. Other religions did do this. They would sacrifice their own children, but God's people never take innocent life. We are made in God's image and we're precious to him. So each son is also redeemed. I want you to listen to the description of this in Numbers 18, 15 to 18, because it gives us a little bit better picture of how they redeem the sons. It says, Everything that first opens the womb of all flesh, which they bring to the Lord, whether man or beast, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of the unclean animals you shall also redeem. And those redeemed of the devoted things you shall redeem when one month old, according to your valuation, for five shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is twenty geras. But the firstborn of a cow, the firstborn of a sheep, the firstborn of a goat you shall not redeem, because they are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar and burn their fat as an offering made by fire for a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. And their flesh shall be yours, just as the wave breast and the right thigh are yours. So this says to substitute their firstborn for five shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras. So they're going to substitute their firstborn sons for money and they redeem their firstborn sons and their donkeys because God redeemed his people from Egypt. And they dedicate these sons to God so that they can remember all the things that the Lord had done whenever he brought them out of Egypt. When their kids ask them why they do this, then they're supposed to tell them that Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let the people go. And so the Lord killed their firstborn and powerfully rescued his own firstborn. So these are the ceremonies that they are supposed to keep and who is supposed to participate in them and how. Now I want to tell you why. I want to tell you the significance of this Passover to all the rest of the people on this earth. And so I want you to read with me Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we didn't esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was on him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison, from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, you shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in the land. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his own soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is obviously talking about Jesus and these Passover instructions pointed God's people to Jesus and salvation and redemption. This salvation of his people from the Egyptians and the redeeming of the firstborn sons and the donkey, all of this is pointing us to Jesus and our salvation and our redemption. Listen to what it says in Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Skip down to verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So Jesus is God's firstborn, unblemished son, who is our Passover lamb. That verse is telling us that he's God's firstborn. Listen to what it says in John 1, 29 to 36. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me because he was before me. I didn't know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel before I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Listen also to what it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8. Your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So it's using a little play on words about the leaven because it says a little leaven makes the whole lump rise. And so he's just talking about just a little bit of sin, a little bit of the old life can really corrupt. And he says, but you aren't of that. You are of Christ, the Passover that was sacrificed for us. John the Baptist called him our Passover lamb. And then just before Jesus' death, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And he told them that he was setting up a whole new covenant. And the Passover meal was no longer just going to represent the Exodus, but it was also going to represent his sacrifice and salvation for all the people. The bread that they ate symbolized his body, which was his life that was given for the people. And the wine symbolized his blood that was going to be shed for the remission of their sins. And so he was telling them that he was going to be led like a sheep to the slaughter as their Passover lamb, just as it said in Isaiah 53. It's just they didn't understand that right then. If you want to read the Passover story of Jesus with his disciples, I will tell you where it's found in the three Gospels. Matthew 26, 26 to 28, Mark 14, 22 to 24, and then Luke 22, 19 and 20. Also, something that's very interesting, I told you earlier, all of these rules were detailed for a reason, and them sacrificing the lamb at twilight also has a reason because Jesus was sacrificed at this time also for our substitute. And they didn't break any of Jesus's bones either, just like they weren't supposed to break the bones of the Passover lamb. That was to fulfill that he could be our Passover lamb because his bones weren't broken. 
Listen to what it says in John 19, 31 to 37. It says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and of the other that was crucified with Jesus. But when they came to him and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done so that the scriptures could be fulfilled that say, Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture that says, They shall look on him who he has pierced. So he was sacrificed at twilight as our substitute, and they did not break any of his bones, just as they did not break the bones of the Passover lamb. So when we believe in who Jesus is and we accept the sacrifice that he has given to us, then we are covered in his blood, just like they covered their doorposts with the blood of the lamb and the angel of death knew to pass over their houses. So are we covered in the blood of the lamb of Jesus. And that serves as a sign that someone's already died for us. Just as the Passover lamb had already died for them, Jesus has already died for us. And that enables God to pass over us and spare our lives eternally. So by the blood of the lamb, we are redeemed. We do not have to suffer eternally for our sins because we have a Passover lamb that sacrificed his life for us. So that when God looks at us, he says, there's already been a sacrifice made for you. Death has already come for that person. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 1, 17 to 19. If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. Remember that that's what happened with the firstborn sons. They were redeemed with silver and gold. We are not. It says, from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your father, you were not redeemed like that. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. How wonderful is that? So we too need to be looking to our Passover lamb, thanking him for covering us in his blood so that we can spend eternity with him one day. What a blessing that that Passover feast had for all generations to come. God passed over their houses and did not give them the punishment of Pharaoh. And God passes over us and does not give us the punishment of sinners. Even though we are, the debt has already been paid for us in Jesus' death. So, thank Him for that today. This Passover is such a significant thing for all of us. And we are so blessed that we have the Passover lamb. Next week, we're going to talk about the actual Exodus. And so, make sure that you join us next time for that. Also, if you would leave me a five-star review, that would be great. And you can leave me comments wherever you're listening or email me at Courtney at LiveThroughJesus.com. Thanks and have a good day. <music>